This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 34, recorded on Friday, October 25th, 2013. I'm your host, Tim Kripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here along with my co-host, Robin Dennis. Welcome back, Robin. Thanks, Tim. It's awesome to be here today. And today on TWIPO, we have a special guest with us, Dr. Nancy Ratner, who is a full professor of pediatrics at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and a well-known cancer biologist in the neurofibromatosis field, and we'll be talking to her about her research in uh, neurofibromas and MPNSTs and, and NF1 and all that great stuff. So if you have questions or comments about today's podcast, even if you're listening to it a long time from now, please email us at twipo at solvingkinscancer.org, and we'll be happy to read your emails and discuss them during a future episode. So Nancy, thank you for being here. Thanks for the invitation, Tim. Robin. So Nancy is a um, is the Beatrice C. Lampkin Professor of Cancer Biology. She did her undergraduate at Brown University and from there went on to her postdoctorate training and, and joined the faculty first at the University of Cincinnati and then at Cincinnati Children's. And can you tell us a little bit about sort of your early history, when how you got into science, what sparked your interest in, in, in doing this whole career? I have to say it was twofold. One, I love to read biographies of, of course, women in science. And second, my father actually had a neurologic disease, which I think stimulated me to want to help try to make people better. At what point in time did you realize that it was your interest? I think from elementary school through college, I just loved taking science classes. So you knew right away. So this was early on. Yeah. <laughs> I just love science classes. And when I got to college, histology, organic chemistry, I really liked them. Did you ever consider going into medicine? Never. Hmm. Because I was too afraid of sick people. I was too emotionally torn by, up by being around people who were really in pain. Mm-hmm. So I think that becoming a research scientist is an alternate way more undercover maybe way to help people. Mm, That's very interesting perspective, yeah. Mm. So you went to uh, get your PhD at Indiana Indiana University, and who did you study with there? I studied with Henry Mahler. He was an interesting guy. He had just written um, an important biochemistry textbook, and he was a yeast authority, and he had found that if you, people had found that if you grind up the brain, you could get little yeast-sized synaptosomes, they called them, little bits that in which you could study the communication between cells in the brain. And he thought yeast, synaptosomes, it's all the same. So <laughs> I don't think of yeast with brains. So, <laughs> so I, I went and studied um, interactions between cells in the brain with Henry Mahler. And then your postdoc was at University of Washington. It, it was at Washington University in St. Louis right. with Dick Bungie and Louis Glazer, who were absolutely fabulous mentors, really great scientists and compassionate people. 
and made science really fun and exciting. And I think it was there I got my real training and my introduction to the peripheral nervous system, which is what I study today now in the context of disease. What do you think makes a good mentor? What should students be looking for in, in their mentors? What about them did you like? Well, I think, number one, the person needs to be passionate about science, excited about it, have very high standards, making sure everything is correct, done as immaculately as possible. But I'd say even equivalently important is an emotional connection to the mentor, so that because science is full of ups and downs. Not every experiment works. In fact, most experiments fail. So there's a huge element of perseverance in getting to a correct answer. So you need to be able to develop a very strong two-way um, communication with your mentor. So if you don't feel that you can actually talk to that person to you know, dig deep and get to whatever the truth is, um, you're going to have a hard time. That's, those are very important lessons, I think. Some of our, our listeners are probably trainees, so hopefully they'll um, take that to heart. <laughs> so how long have you been at Cincinnati Children's? Since 2004. And have you been doing this work on the performative tumors since then, that whole time? I actually started working on neurofibromatosis in 1985, if you can believe that. I was invited to the very first world meeting on neurofibromatosis. It was a New York Academy of Sciences meeting in New York. I'd never heard of neurofibromatosis. And it was so interesting, and there was so little known that when I started my own laboratory, I began to work on it. So what, what were some of the challenges as you opened your own lab into a new field that you hadn't really been in before? Well, on the positive side, let me, I'll talk about the challenges later, but I can tell you on the positive side, there was really no field. So anything I did had to be right. <laughs> was <Yes>. novel and new. <laughs> Automatic niche. Yeah. Um, so, so another lesson for, for trainees, find something no one's done before yeah. or studied mm-hmm. well. But there must have been challenges if you weren't just carrying on your work from your postdoc to your own lab, if you were sort of striking out a new. Mm-hmm. Was that difficult in terms of other people to collaborate with and so forth? People in the NF field... From the beginning, from Vic Riccardi, who, you know, sent me tumor samples, the people who were in the field were very welcoming. And in truth, I did for some years continue with the work I've been doing as a postdoc and this new NF work. Mm -hmm. It did involve learning new technologies. And I was greatly helped by my first postdoc who had been trained in a cancer biology lab. Since there is so little known has it been easy to get funding support for something like NF1 in the research because people are looking for breakthroughs? or And how has that changed over yeah. time? That's another question. I came from a developmental neuroscience background, and I was moving into a cancer field. And I think the NIH was very supportive of the idea of linking two fields. Right. People from the beginning who reviewed my grant proposals liked that, mm-hmm. it, that it wasn't just the same old thing. In terms of the support for neurofibromatosis overall, uh, the field has been very lucky because we have the Children's Tumor Foundation, um, which is based in New York, which runs our annual meeting and supports people through small grants. 
And in addition to the NIH, which can't possibly by itself support research programs this, these days, uh, we also have funding through the Department of Defense that's been instrumental in helping many people in, who work on NF to build their labs. And actually, the fact that you mentioned the Children's Tumor Foundation is important. We've had a number of episodes mm -hmm. that our listeners can go back to over the last uh, year where we've talked about research advocacy and had people from different private foundations and parent groups on yeah. talking about the importance of research advocacy. And so this is another example of how important community support is. Tell us a little bit. Let's get into your science a little bit. What are what do you think some of the important findings have been over the last five to ten years? I mean, you've done a lot of different work and um, you've actually come around uh, to actually have clinical implications of your work as well, despite your initial reticence about going into medicine. Uh, let's just not talk about me. It's not very interesting. Let's talk about the field <laughs> in general. <laughs> Either one. <laughs> so in 1990, it was the huge breakthrough in NF1 when the NF1 gene was identified um, by two labs, that of Francis Collins, who's well-known right now, being head of the National Institutes of Health, and Ray White's lab at University of Utah. The next set of breakthroughs was to show that the function of this gene was to modify signaling pathways, in particular the RAS signaling pathway. The third exciting chapter in NF land uh, was several people, Tyler Jacks, Louise Parada, um, developed uh, mouse models that we could use. Others developed um, fruit fly models of neurofibromatosis. And that all together set the stage for what's happening now and what's really exciting now, which is to use those models and um, variations on those models to test drugs and uh, really connect to the to the human disease in a way, right? Thank you. So those are models of tumor genesis, but there's a lot more to NF1 patients in terms of neurologic issues. And are there models for cognitive or other kinds of impairments in patients? Indeed, there are. So as you know, Tim, NF1 patients are predisposed to really a bewildering array of issues, including cognitive issues, bone issues, um, various kinds of tumors, not just the peripheral nerve tumors that I study. Um, there are lots and lots of systems that are affected by the disorder. There are now mouse models of a large number of these different problems. And people all around the globe are working to determine if a therapy that might help to treat one of these manifestations might also be useful in the others. That, that remains an open question. So the, obviously the, the most easiest to study have come, become these, the tumor types, so the brain tumors and the malignant peripheral nerve sheet tumors and the peripheral nerve benign neurofibromas, as you've talked about. For several reasons. I think one is because they, that the families really want help for children and young adults with these problems because these are life-threatening manifestations often. There's a lot of energy in the community and resources to try to address these first. For for our listeners who aren't actually familiar with NF1, how common is it? NF1 affects about 1 in 3,000 individuals, so it's an extremely common um, inherited disorder. What that translates to is about 
100,000 people in the United States affected by NF1. And how many of them have neurofibromas and how many of them have the cancer sarcomas? 25% at least. Some people estimate 50% of patients have so-called plexiform neurofibromas, which are often very large um, problematic neurofibromas. 95% will have small um, tumors that we call dermal neurofibromas. In terms of the optic pathway gliomas, that's estimated between 10 and 25%. Other manifestations like bone problems are much less common. And problems like cognitive issues, like visual spatial organization, it can affect is at least 50%. So it's really a high penetrance of all these problems. Mm -hmm. Yes. But one of the mysteries, actually, is why it's not everybody who's affected by every manifestation. Yeah. Right. you have any ideas about that? No. Genetics? <laughs> well, people have proposed. <laughs> Environment. Environment. <laughs> I think many people think, think that it's twofold. Uh, one could be the genetic background of the individual, what polymorphisms there are in the genome. In other words, how subtle um, variations in their DNA um, predispose to one manifestation or another. Uh, the other main idea is that some things are just chance. So the tumors arise from additional mutations in the NF1 gene itself in what will become the tumor tissue. So that if one gets this additional event, one will develop a plexiform neurofibroma. If one is lucky and does not get this event, then one will not. Can you tell us a little bit about your most recent research? You modeled, uh, and you talked about it today in your in your lecture, but you've modeled in the mouse uh, peripheral uh, neurofibromas and have been able to successfully screen lots of different compounds or drugs to look at their effects on on the growth of those tumors. So in the past, as some people in the audience may know, there's been no treatment other than surgical excision of these complicated masses of these. But now there's some hope based on yours and other work um, for actually shrinking some of these medically. Can you tell us about that? I'll start by saying that I have been so happy to be involved in a group of people who are testing drugs across a number of NF1 manifestations. This uh, preclinical testing consortium is uh, funded by the Children's Tumor Foundation and has given us um, access to funds that has really allowed us to screen a number of different drugs across many NF1 model systems. In our case, as you say, we're using our uh, plexiform neurofibroma mouse model. We have tested more than 10 drugs, and one of them has shown the ability, at least in mice, to shrink many tumors. Uh, we're very excited about this, and we're working closely with several clinicians now who are carrying out clinical trials with other inhibitors in this class. And we're eagerly awaiting the um, results from those clinical trials. We all know that mouse models don't always model, as it were, the human condition very well. And lots of things have worked well in the mice that haven't panned out in people. That's absolutely right, Tim. Some people think 
that the kinds of genetically engineered mouse models that we are using for our testing may be more predictive of success in the human. And we are, uh, as I said, eagerly waiting to determine whether that's true. So what is, what do you think, I guess, is your next sort of step in the lab for you? Just looking at more inhibitors or trying to connect the dots between the precursor cells, you know, well, Robin, I'd say it's a multi, multifactorial. Uh, we're very much interested in trying to use our success to generate more success. In other words, ask whether we can combine drugs to abs- ablate tumors rather than just shrinking them. Second, we're interested outside this testing group into in identifying possibly novel pathways that could be used therapeutically. And third, personally, I'm really interested in the idea that we could completely prevent the formation of tumors and not simply treat them. Do you think that's possible? Yes. Yes, I do. And probably because they're driven by pathways that we can inhibit, essentially. Is that the basis of your optimism? Just an optimist. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair enough. Sometimes that's what it takes to be in this business. You have to have passion and optimism. Passion and optimism. There you go. (laughs) So looking back on uh, your career, is there anything that you would have done differently or had any regrets about or wished, you know, something had gone a different way? And you've got plenty of your career left in the future, but just so far. I think I should have moved before earlier than I did. <laughs> I think that for scientists, it's very invigorating to meet uh, new colleagues and generate new ideas and connections and the opportunity to um, go out to meetings as much as possible and take sabbaticals. I, I wish I'd done that earlier. Actually, hmm. now that you brought up sabbatical, can you tell us about your summers? Oh. <laughs> Um, what Tim is alluding to is my secret life. I have a long-standing collaboration with uh, Dr. Scott Brady, who's at University of Illinois at Chicago, and he is an expert in how molecules move along uh, microtubule railroad tracks within axons. And he and I, um, in the summers for 15 years, have been studying how tumor suppressor molecules, so cancer-related molecules, tumor suppressors, oncogenes, may affect the movement of uh, material within cells. And we've published a few papers on this. And where do you do that? Well, that's the dirty little secret is that I am able to go to Cape Cod to the amazing world-class marine biological laboratory in Woods Hole to carry out experiments on the squid giant axon. As one of the guys in my lab, Bob Hannigan, once said, Nancy really takes it for the team. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that sounds like a great summer. (laughs) I think your point is well taken that sometimes it's good to get away and do something different. Come back with a fresh mind and new ideas, new thoughts. Great. Any other questions, Robin? More on a personal note, you had mentioned being very interested in women in medicine. Is there any kind of, I guess, um, advice you would give women, including myself, who's sort of young and just starting out in this field in terms of perseverance, family life, anything that you think is <laughs> important for us to so know? So you make friends with other women scientists and doctors who can support you. 
through your career when you're having a hard time. Don't expect to be given what your male colleagues are given. And uh, enjoy your science and your career, and you'll be okay. Good. Sounds good. Good words to live by. (laughs) Well, great. Well, thank you for being here, Nancy. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you, Robin, for for being here. No problem. Thank you. Again, we're happy to read anybody's email. If you have a question, I'll forward it on to Nancy. Uh, Email us at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow us at on Twitter at Twipo Podcast, and you can also sign up for automatic notification when we post new episodes on the Solving Kids Cancer website. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. The team includes Donald Lewinsky, our executive producer, Jenny Song, director of communications, and Scott Kennedy and John London, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. And also thanks to Lisa Fuhrer, our sound engineer today, subbing in for our usual team and Maybe we'll make her a permanent member of the crew. So remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.